0: All right, Alexander, let's talk about the recent uh, interview and statements from Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, who, of course, talked about the, uh, the conflict in Ukraine, talked about uh, the, the Collective West partners, as Russia used to call them, their partners in the West. I don't, I don't know if they're still using that term. And uh, he also talked quite a bit about what's going on in armenia as well russia armenia relations which are going through a very difficult time and uh, we also have some statements connected to the conflict in ukraine from uh, volodin from shoigu and we are hearing more and more the russian the russian government the putin administration pushing back against the idea of some sort of armistice or Korea-like freeze. I think they're making it very clear that this, this idea that is floating around the, uh, the halls of Congress and around the Biden White House is a non-starter for them. I wonder if, I wonder if Sullivan and Blinken are getting the message.
1: Well, they're clearly not getting the message. And we're getting very strong statements now coming out of the Russians. And on that very specific topic that you said about the freeze and the ceasefire, Lavrov categorically and emphatically over the course of this latest interview, and for the second time in a week, he he straightforwardly ruled it out. He said that what the West wants to do is that they want to freeze the conflict on the present ceasefire lines so that they can rearm Ukraine and that is unacceptable to Russia, and that the Russians will not agree. He he said it as straightforwardly as that. And of course, in a previous interview, he said that yes, the Russians are prepared to talk, they're prepared to sit down, and they're prepared to conduct negotiations, but these have to be on meaningful proposals. So far, none of the proposals they've received, which officially still are based on Zelensky's peace plan, which is a peace plan which is unacceptable to Russia. It's about withdrawing all their troops, handing over all the territory, basically capitulating entirely, and then talking about something. Um, But, you know, if something serious is proposed, the Russians are prepared to discuss it, but there will be no ceasefire. There is no possibility of any kind of ceasefire at all. And he, he said this again. Um, in his interview, this, the second interview that he gave, which he gave yesterday. So I, I don't know whether Sullivan and Blinken and company are listening, but Lavrov has stated it absolutely clearly, and you're completely right, other officials in the Putin government are coming out and they're making statements, and this is clearly coordinated, and they are exceptionally hard-line. So we had Volodin, who is the Speaker of the Russian par- Parliament, the lower house of the Russian Parliament, the Duma, the more important part of the Russian Parliament. He's come forward and he said that there is only one outcome to this war: that is, either Ukraine capitulates completely or it ceases to exist as a state. That was what Volodin said. I mean, very stark. And then we had another comment from Shoigu in which he said that Ukraine is on a path to self-destruction, which essentially mirrors what Volodin said. So the Russian government is going out of its way to make it absolutely clear, the Putin administration is going out of its way to make it absolutely clear, they are not interested in a ceasefire, they are not interested in a freeze, they are not going there, um, and of course they're not prepared to discuss Zelensky's peace plan which is the only plan so far that the West has put on the table and of course all of these other suggestions and mumbled proposals that we hear off stage about South Korean variants and West German variants that's not ever been put in a formal document to the Russians so they're just ignoring it.
0: OK, so I think we have before we get to Armenia, which I think is an interesting topic because Lavrov said a lot of interesting things about Armenia. Uh, would you say that we have a, a, a massive disconnect between uh, the United States, Sullivan and his side, the Russians and the Zelensky administration? What, what do I mean by that? Uh, you know, Lavrov and, and the Putin administration, for them... Ukraine is an existential issue yes okay and they they're saying it either capitulation or serious negotiations but negotiations that are substantive yes that solves this problem that we keep on having with with Ukraine and and more importantly with NATO expansion so they want this issue solved okay that's that those are their terms for negotiations if they don't get that then they're gonna they're, they're gonna um it's going to be a military solution. Yes. They're, they're, they're clear about that. Yes. The Zelensky regime is losing. It's lost two weeks till the rain and muds comes in on the front line. The, the, the counteroffensive is not going anywhere. They, they, they readjusted the, the, um, what success means, and now it's getting to the outskirts of Tokmak. It's not even about the Sea of Azov. So they're not even getting there. The Zelensky regime, to me, these individuals are fighting for their very survival, like yes. on planet Earth. Yes. That's, that's how I see it. Yes, uh, but Ukraine is, is 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 also fighting for its survival, and there are soldiers that are that, that are, you know, being sent to the front lines, and, and 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 and, you know, they're dying as as this regime, this Zelensky regime, is is trying to figure a way to 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 keep in power and to stay alive. But then you have the big disconnect from the U.S. side because my feeling, my sense of things is that the Biden White House, and actually I would say even the Republicans, the Rhinos, the McConnells, uh, for them, Ukraine is now a political issue. It's yes. not even a military issue anymore. It, it, it's about the politics of deterring China. It's about not having this damage the the democrat party maybe not damaging the rhinos and the republicans as well i mean the, ukraine has shifted now for them to just be a, a topic that needs a political solution that that's my sense of things uh is that correct absolutely I, now how, let, how let, are you seeing this because this uh, is a uh, huge uh, divide uh, if this
1: i mean it, negotiations are going to be impossible if, if this is the case oh absolutely i mean i'm going to be fr- frank i think listening to what the russians are saying listening to what, I mean, reading especially Lavrov, and of course, Lavrov, because he's the foreign minister, is always the most measured. He he has to be, he has to say things that he can then justify when he talks to, say, Modi, or the Indian foreign minister, or the foreign ministers of the African Union, or those sort of people. So he has to be more careful in his choice of words. But reading what Lavrov says, and then looking at what people like Volodin and Shoigu say. My own strong feeling is that the Russians are no longer interested in negotiations. They don't believe negotiations are going to work. Lavrov, in his latest interview, he said, how can we trust anybody? How can we trust anybody after what happened over the Minsk agreement? They accuse us of undermining Ukraine's sovereignty. The whole point about the Minsk agreement, which we negotiated, was to preserve Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. It was they who undermined it, and they lied to us about, about it. So, how can we negotiate with these people? How are our negotiations realistically going to happen in this context? Reading Lavrov, it's absolutely clear to me that the Russians themselves now believe... That a military solution is the only one that is going to happen and i should say something you talked about the failure of ukraine's offensive which i think it's becoming more and more clear by the day as i said they've got two weeks before the rains begin they've suffered titanic losses over the course of the summer even by world war ii standards this would have been a big big battle and a big defeat And, of course, we're not in a kind of World War II-scale war. So I think the Russians are scenting victory. (laughs) They're, They're saying to themselves, we've seen this thing off. We've dealt with the worst the West can throw at us. Our forces are in the business of building up. We're getting stronger all the time. So why should we negotiate at all? We don't trust the other side. They're not coming up with sensible or coherent um, solutions. They've shown in the past how little they think of us, how they've lied to us at every turn. So we're going through the motions. We have to go on saying that if a meaningful proposal is put to us, we'll sit down and discuss it because we have to do that. But basically, we don't believe that's ever going to happen. And of course, we will never agree to a ceasefire. A military solution now is the only one that we believe will happen. I think that's the Russian position. I think for the Ukrainians, I think you're absolutely correct. The Ukrainian leadership, they don't want any kind of peace negotiated or ceasefire negotiated for them Personally, that would be a disaster for the leadership, for people like Zelensky and um, Podolyak and Yermak, and all of those people. I think it would be very, very dangerous for them to go down that r- r- route. And I was reading uh, um, an interview that Kirill Budanov, the um, Ukrainian s- intelligence chief, gave to the Drive. Um, and I have to say, reading it, I could see why people like Zelensky and Yermak and Podoliak would be frightened of going down the route of meaningful, meaningful negotiations. Because Budanov, whom I have... Come to think of as, you know, embodying, if you like, the extreme hardliners in Kiev, and who I have read articles in the British media who also identify him as the extreme hardliner in Kiev. What he basically wants is for Ukraine to go down fighting. And he is determined, and people around him are determined, that no one who is in any position of authority should, um, you know, pull back from that. And if Zelensky comes up with proposals for negotiations, it's people like Budanov in Kiev who, remember, runs an assassination program in Russia and all of that. It's people like him that they would have to, you know, answer to. So the Ukrainians don't want to do that. And it's not going to happen from their side. Now, in the United States, the... Counteroffensive. offensive the failure of the counter-offensive has completely changed the dynamics They no longer seriously believe that they can defeat the Russians. I think this is probably the case. They no longer believe that they can engineer regime change in Russia. So Ukraine has gone from being the grand strategy that was going to win us the new Cold War and secure hegemony to becoming a political problem in the United States itself. And that is now how the American political class of every you know all the factions within it apart from you know the populist wing of the republican party which has been opposed to this basically from the outset but the mainstream factions that's now how they're looking at it so the democrats want to find some way to offload it they want to perhaps they're looking perhaps to blame any failure there on the republicans the republicans want to fasten it on the democrats And I think you're absolutely right. I think that is their priority. It is, for them now, a political problem connected with the domestic political struggle in the United States. It's no longer an issue of grand strategy anymore.
0: No, it's an issue about deterring China
1: now as well. Absolutely, well, of course, it's not really about Ukraine. Well, everybody, it's not no. really
0: the money. The money that we've spent on Ukraine is money well spent. Oh, it absolutely, been really well spent money, and
1: it's going to deter China. That's well,
0: that's yeah. the campaign slogan.
1: Well, that's the campaign. So it might might even be the rationalisation. I mean, and, you know, there are probably some people who believe it. I mean, I can imagine that Mitch McConnell, for example, might possibly believe it, or more plausibly still, Lindsey Graham might believe it. But, um, I mean, they they say all of this, but at the same time, I think some of them are probably clever enough to know that that's hogwash, frankly, and, and, uh, you know, that... At the same time, they understand that they have a problem on their hands and they've got to try and find some way of walking away from it and, you know, not getting attached, not having any blame fastened on them. And one of the ways is to talk about it far less than they did. And you're starting to see that you're starting to I mean, I've noticed, for example, that the media here in Britain is talking far less Ukraine, about Ukraine over the last couple of days. than it will last couple of weeks than it used to do even a few weeks ago. I mean, this story is now fading fast. And I, from what I can see in the United States, it's the case also. It's now become part of the background news. You see it on the, you know, um, you know, you, you, you see that there's always a little article somewhere or, you know, bottom of the front page of the New York Times that goes about Ukraine. But f- far more important things are happening now. The election next year is the really important business. You're not really worried about. You don't want people thinking about Ukraine anymore or talking about it very much. And by the way, I completely endorse your view that another reason for wanting to step away from ukraine is because of the disaster at the canadian parliament i think within the u.s that did cut through to an awful lot of people you know outside the political system and that's going to make the political professionals, they're even more careful about how they handle this issue from, from this point onwards. Yeah, I agree
0: with that. You know, the one thing that they have to avoid, which I think is on their mind, is they can't have the optics of what happened in Afghanistan. That's what I think really concerns. And concerns yes. they can't have a plane taking off with people hanging on onto the plane as it's as it's flying away. They cannot have that at all costs. So that's what I think they're trying to yes. to manage here. But um, let's let's maybe shift to Armenia now. Yeah, because uh, I think uh, our analysis was was 100 spot on on Armenia. Uh, look, Pashinyan he engineered. This whole debacle with Nagorno karabakh that's what everything is uh, is showing now. And, you know, Samantha Power in Armenia, I believe the deputy, uh, one of the deputy secretary of, of states, I forgot her name. She was in Armenia. You're getting statements from Macron talking about how France is going to take Armenia uh, in. You're getting statements from the United States saying that they're going to pull Armenia uh, into the U.S. Uh, security architecture. Bashinyan is, is now openly saying that, you know, Russia needs to get out pretty much. Those are pretty much the statements that you're getting now. Russia's going to get out. We're going west. I mean, they didn't even wait a week until this, this debacle in Nakorno-Karabakh at least sorted itself out. If, if it's ever going to sort itself out, uh, this is a catastrophe for Armenia. But, you know, they're they're, they're showing their, their, their cards pretty, pretty up front here. They're being pretty straight up as to as to where Armenia is now going to to pivot towards. Indeed. And they're they're being very antagonistic to Russia, which I find to be a a huge mistake.
1: Well, absolutely. And I completely agree. And I mean, let's be very clear. Um, This conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan is not resolved. There's no peace treaty between these two countries. There were supposed to be negotiations for a peace treaty. These were based on the agreements that were brokered by Putin way back in 2020. But, of course, um, why would the Azerbaijanians now agree to a peace treaty? They've got Nagorno-Karabakh. They're in a position of enormous military superiority. They know perfectly well that Armenia is not going to get the kind of protection from the West that it once got from Russia, and they will be angling before very long, I have no doubt to um, start encroaching further and further on Armenia's border with Azerbaijan, which has not been fully delineated. So, I mean, this is, uh, this is only starting. This is not the end of this affair, whatever Pashinyan and his people, his followers may think. But, you know, you're absolutely right. Lavrov has discussed this extensively. And he, uh, it's interesting that if you go to the Russian Foreign Ministry website, The only part of this latest interview, the one that he made yesterday um, with Lavrov, that has so far been translated and published by the Russian Foreign Ministry on the website, is the part that relates to Armenia. And Lavrov has made further comments. The Russian Foreign Ministry has published a long statement. They've discussed in detail... Pashinyan's negotiating strategy, his political strategy. They talk about how Armenia was flooded with um, um, NGOs, Western NGOs, the way in which uh, this distorted the Armenian economy, um, because people who work for the NGOs got paid an awful lot more money than people could realistically be paid for working in the rest of the Armenian economy, how this has clearly been a long-standing project to detach Armenia from Russia. And um, the Foreign Ministry statement and Lavrov statements go into the details about the recent negotiations, how um, um, Pashinyan went and met with the EU in Prague and Brussels and went back on an agreement that had actually been reached with Azerbaijan and brokered by Putin, which is that the final status of Nagorno-Karabakh would be uh, deferred until negotiations for the peace treaty between Armenia and Russia had been sorted out. And instead of uh, you know, sticking to that position, Pashinyan, at the urging of the European Union, suddenly and unexpectedly, and without blindsiding the Russians completely, suddenly announced that Armenia accepts that um, Nagorno-Karabakh falls under the sovereignty of Azerbaijan. So this has all been set out. The Russians have said this is Armenia's decision. They're not going to interfere directly with it. They're not going to sanction Armenia. But they think Armenia is making a huge mistake. It's isolating itself from Russia. It won't be able to do that indefinitely. The Russians have also gone out of their way to say that any hopes or expectations that they're going to lose interest and withdraw from the Southern Caucasus are simply wrong, which, by the way, I take to be a sign that the Russians are now going to push forward and improve their relations with Azerbaijan. Why would they not? And essentially they say that sooner or later the Armenians will understand their mistake and perhaps at that point this damage that has been done to the relationship can be repaired. Now, I, I think that the relationship is now on the brink of collapse. I can't imagine it will continue for very much longer.
0: The the relationship between Armenia and Armenia Russia? Armenia
1: and Russia, yeah. How... Yeah. Yeah.
0: How exactly will will that work, though, the, the collapse well, in the relationship? I mean,
1: I, I, I presume you, you that... You go to Armenia and, and and
0: there's a huge Russian presence, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. About. I mean, well, what,
1: what, yeah. What, what I think will happen is that Armenia will leave the Collective Security Treaty Organization and the Eurasian Union, even though it is absolutely, as, as the Russians have pointed out, membership of the Eurasian Economic Union has been vital to for um, Armenia's economic health health but that's what's going to happen remember it's a small country so the west can paper over the cracks at least for a long well for a while probably for a long time by sending in financial aid it won't cost the west a huge amount but the economy will become increasingly distorted economic growth will become um unbalanced it'll be a type of dutch disease i'm taking that from the economist in which the country instead of developing properly on you know through proper trade and economic links and that kind of thing instead becomes on infusions of western aid yeah
0: and and the diaspora in in the united states and in france will will push the uh the U.S. and France to to inject that that much. Oh,
1: absolutely, it. absolutely. And it's important to say not everybody in the diaspora in these two countries probably supports this this process. But almost by definition, if you're talking about the United States and France, the people who will be the most well known and prominent in those two countries, um, in you know in the Armenian diaspora in France and the United States, will be people who are very close to the politics, who support the political positions of the United States and France. You don't rise to the top in a diaspora, as a leader of of a diaspora in these two countries, unless you are seen as being loyal to these countries, unsurprisingly. So the official agencies, if you like, or let's, let's call it like that, the institutions of the diaspora, the Armenian diaspora in Armenia and, sorry, in the United States and France, they will be working to support the convergence of Armenia into the Euro-Atlantic system. I mean, they played a big role in bringing this about. And, of course, what they're doing, probably without realising it, in fact, definitely, without realizing it, is undermining armenia 's position in the Caucasus
0: yeah. and azerbaijan will will press forward yeah, um, in, in their claims as well absolutely, and it 's going to be the, the the disaster there yeah
1: absolutely, and of course, and i mean I, I would not be surprised if before very long, we see Azerbaijan um, applying to join the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement and the BRICS, and who knows, even maybe the Eurasian Economic Union. And perhaps one day, who knows, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, though I suspect the Russians will be a bit wary about that, because they even, even after all this has happened, they will not want to support Azerbaijan in its territorial claims in Armenia. And the Russians will do what they always do in these scenarios. They will watch and wait Knowing that sooner or later this whole thing will come tumbling down, and then at that point they will step in and sweep up all the pieces.
0: And Turkey comes out uh, a winner in all of this. Absolutely,
1: uh, yeah.
0: Oddly enough, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Played, his, played his hands very well. Here. In this in
1: in this area, he played it extremely well. But I mean, to a great extent. Because, I mean, he's not up against Putin. This has become very clear now. He's not been up against Putin. He's been up against Pashinyan. And Pashinyan is no match for Erdogan. And he's, anyway, he's made his own agenda now absolutely clear, crystal clear.
0: Yeah. Okay, uh, let's leave it there. Oh, real quick, before we end the video, um, since we're talking about Erdogan, Menendez scandal... Yeah, the Menendez scandal. Erdogan is saying F-16s. Now that we got Menendez out of the way, or we're about to get Menendez out of the way, let's wrap up the the F-16 fighter jet deal that has been uh, that has been in limbo for for a while now. Uh, my thinking on this is is that's the reason. <laughs> <going> after Menendez, <laughs> I mean, well, Menendez has had a lot of problems with yeah. with allegations with corruption. It's been it's been dogging him for. For many many years uh but they've remained allegations uh to be fair uh i think the real reason behind all of this is is because menendez was was the main guy the main guy that was putting up a lot of resistance for the f-16 deal in turkey has now come out and said this he's come out and said as much
1: I absolutely agree. I think you're completely right. I mean, remember, I mean, Menendez has not only had to survive and, you know, brush off allegations of this kind in the past, but he's also been prosecuted before and he survived not because he was you know f- fully vindicated but, but because the jury split <laughs> so i mean it was in in that in that particular case so you know he's been around these allegations everybody's known about this apparently for a very very long time it didn't stop him becoming chair of the senate foreign relations committee putting him in pole position and of course he wasn't going to leave the scene because to say gently. Um, if he ceased to be um, chair of the Senate Foreign Relations P- Committee, well, his leverage in places like Egypt and such places would have reduced quite a lot. So he wasn't stepping aside. He wasn't going to step aside for the F-16s because, again, um, wouldn't have been in his interests, maybe. I'm <laughs> just, just saying. So how do you get this problem resolved? Well, you know, you get your friends in the Justice Department to bring a case, and in Menendez's case, in Menendez's case, it's not difficult to do that. So he's no longer chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Commission. He's still in. He's still in the Senate. Perhaps he will continue to be. Who knows? I'm not. I'm not predicting any outcome to his um, to his trial, but. More likely than not, Erdogan will get his F-16s.
0: And he'll vote a yes for Sweden. Exactly. Everyone's happy. Everyone's except happy. Except
1: Menendez. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, don't, don't, don't count him out entirely. I'm making mean, you know, a hung jury before. Who's to say there won't be one again?
0: Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. com. We are on Odyssey, Bitch Shoot, Telegram, Rumble, Rockfin, and... X, and go to the Durant shop, use the code goodday, get 10% off all merchandise. Take care.